we involve them in the care of the patient from day one. They're physically with them here in, in therapy. There's physical therapy, occupational therapy, in the physician's office, the whole nine yards. We make sure they're involved. So, again, they really provide that, again, real-life safety for the patient when they're not with us, but also the patient gets maximum effect from everything we do when we work in tandem with that family member care provider. Welcome to the TBI Family, the podcast for caregivers of service members and veterans who've experienced traumatic brain injuries. This program is produced by the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center, otherwise known as DIBBIC. I'm your host, Dr. Scott Livingston. Communication between a service member or veteran's caregiver and their health care provider is an important element of their recovery. Caregivers can experience frustrations when it comes to communicating with providers and providers rely on clear communication to best provide for veterans and service members. The TBI family's Myron Goodman Hello. and Sydney Hines hey there. recently spoke with both providers and caregivers to better understand how they can work together to provide for their patients and loved ones. So the two of you went out to speak with providers and family caregivers about the ways they interact on behalf of service members and veterans. Yes, I spoke with Sharon Grassi and Jessica Rodriguez, who are a mother and a spouse, respectively, to veterans. And I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Madoff Shah, who is an attending physician at the Washington, D.C. VA Medical Center, and with Steve Springer, a nurse practitioner at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Myron, what did caregivers have to say about their role? Well, Sharon and Jessica both spoke about the transitions necessary to become a full-time caregiver. To me, it becomes, uh, becoming an advocate means supporting or speaking on behalf of my loved one, helping request services for them, um, helping them find adequate care, finding competent specialists uh, that have a background in um, that type of injury that he has, which is blast exposure, uh, really trying to work with those uh, healthcare team members and um, getting them to communicate together and really just being a voice for him. That's the biggest role as an advocate. Um, becoming an advocate for me um, really meant understanding the um, what the person that I'm advocating for needs, and that is a huge education in what do they want me to do, what does my son need from me, what is he expecting, and and then when I came to that term of, you know, defining my role for him, then I could really um, reach into the different diagnoses that he had and try to understand them better because it was really difficult for me, not coming from a medical background, to advocate for someone outside of my own experience, my own norm. So I, um, I think sometimes it's easier to advocate for someone else than to advocate for yourself. So that part I, I could get, but really understanding and making sure that I, I was doing what he wanted and that I understood the breadth and the depth of his diagnosis so that then I could communicate appropriately with those providers to get what he needed, um, you know, in a timely fashion or in an appropriate fashion. 
So you can see that Sharon and Jessica have had to overcome a lot of challenges in this transition. The providers I spoke to were very conscious of these challenges. Uh, Steve Springer emphasized that caregivers are vital in helping the provider deliver optimum care. They're what we call a care extender uh, for us. They work in tandem with what we do. We're only with the patient a few hours a day. These people are with them 24 and 7. Um, they feel a real-time life safety role for the patient. Um, is the patient taking his medications? Or are there things that we don't see when we're with the patient that have come up medically? Or are there psychiatric issues or traumatic brain injury issues that we may not be aware of, which are impacting the, ba the patient's behavior and also their overall recovery? So from my experience, this rings true, um, that providers do rely on caregivers to be there even when they can't be. That's right. And in that same vein, Dr. Shaw emphasized that the caregiver may see things that the provider does not. You may be you may be someone who's able to understand them much better, and so you become their voice in that way. And that's from a medical perspective. But then, from the non-medical perspective, I'm really thinking about um, the overall biopsychosocial factors in your home, um, and how that environment has changed, and what some of the things that you're seeing in your house is just basic stuff that that look that looks different from where you'd like it to be. The caregivers can be the eyes and the ears of the provider, but they obviously can't do it on their own. That's absolutely right. Steve Springer made a point of explaining the resources available to caregivers. Specific support, uh, the biggest ones obviously are you got the Red Cross, the USO, Fisher House. There are a variety of other nonprofits that are out there that provide local support. There are several we use here. Um, they're really good for the nonspecific things that are not covered by the military itself. Good example. You have a wife that has a newborn, they need a baby stroller, they didn't bring it with them. You know, that's when you would call one of these support groups and say, look, you know, I need a stroller and two boxes of diapers. And literally within the hour, usually you have double what you asked for in the office. But again, making sure that this information gets to that wounded warrior and that family member is, is key. A lot of times early into the, their um, hospitalization, Myself and other people will do more of that coordination for them. Um, as they progress further down the road, we ask them, again, especially for our traumatic brain injury folks, to assume that role of asking for the support. One, we want them to establish a relationship, and two, we want to see how they can actually handle activities of daily living. Are they going to be able to reintegrate back into society successfully? Because sometimes you can do too much for people. Um, you need to carry them to a certain point and then start putting a little bit of expectation back on them so that they make sure they have those life skills back on place and they can function. It's life safety, you know. Obviously, the big one is can you remember to look at the red light before you cross the street? Um, folks which are impaired or have brain injury may not think that. Or did you remember to put the milk in the refrigerator after you shopped? Now, there's a lot of things that we really start expecting them to do, which may not even be on most people's radar, but we really want to make sure that they can handle that, the multitasking, the everyday activities. Uh, for somebody that's not 100% functional, um, just getting up and figuring out what clothes to wear and do your medications in the morning can really be a challenge. Steve also spoke to the various people a caregiver might have to interact with to help their veteran or service member. Um, you're going to have a physician in charge. Um, which for us is physical medicine doctor. They direct all the care for our amputees. 
Um, under them, some of the key players, of course, we do collaborate with uh, traumatic brain injury, psych support, also to include um, orthopedics quite a bit, and physical therapy, occupational therapy, prosthetics, and of course, the nursing support staff, which is myself. I'm one of two care coordinators. Uh, physicians dictate the care. Uh, we all collaborate with each other. Uh, the patient shouldn't have to ask for that to happen. That should happen automatically, and it should be explained to them, again, you're going to see physical therapy for three weeks for this care. Do you know why you're going? What are your questions? What are your concerns? What goals do you expect us to meet for you at the end of that care? It, it may seem simple, but a lot of people are, are intimidated by health care in general. They're really reluctant to talk and ask the questions they need to. That's important. They're receiving the care. We're, we're working for them. They need to let us know what their expectations are. And, of course, that's back to that open communication. Again, um, we recommend things because, again, we do tend to be the experts in our field, but we want to collaborate with the patient to make sure we're meeting their goals, too, at the same time. That can be a lot for a caregiver to take in, especially if they're new to the role. It can be a very stressful time. Sharon was caught off guard the first time she reconnected with her son post-deployment. With my son... Um, he was still active duty military, and um, he seemed to be putting the needs of others over his own needs. He was neglecting his own needs, um, and he was having a problem really processing things that he needed to do for himself. Um, at the time, I was connecting it to PTSD. I was connecting it to a lot of pressure coming out of deployments. And I, I really didn't understand what was going on. Today, I understand what was happening to him with TBI. At the time, he had still not had a TBI evaluation. The only thing that I had as a diagnosis was, was PTSD. So um, he, he worked himself basically into a corner helping others and ended up putting himself in a military break, which is a, a just a difficult position and a really bad place for someone who is dealing with PTSD and TBI. Um, it, it, it exacerbated what was going on with him. Um, and at the time, well, and the day after he ended up in the military brig, he attempted suicide. So my minimal attempts to, hey, step in, this is the mom, what's going on, became pretty much a um, me barging in, flying to Hawaii and saying, this is enough. We're done. There are some problems. There are some medical problems, and we are going to deal with them. And so really from that day, even though there wasn't a place for me in the military to speak that way, and they didn't, didn't take very kindly to it on a number of occasions, that wasn't what I really cared about anymore. It was, this is going down a wrong path. I don't care if he did or did not do what he ended up in the brig for. You will take care of them. You will identify whether any of this had uh, took a part in getting him to this point, and we will take care of him. So so really, the day after suicide was, was a very big turning point for me. Once they realized they had issues they needed addressing, they were thrown into the role of advocating for their loved ones. Both of them came away with advice other caregivers can use. 
Look into brain injury-related resources in your state. Make sure that you write them down, what, what they do, what they can do, and what they cannot help you with. Really start developing a support network for yourself to help your um, loved one that has brain injury. Some of the best ways to do that is through researching. Learn as much as you can about the type of injury that your loved one has. Um, and that could be researching it online. It could be finding a specialist that just deals with that type of injury. And they could be out of state. They could be out of the country. But it's not impossible to connect with those people. But you have to find them, and you have to find the one that those people that are going to be significantly important with the type of injuries that are unique to your loved one. I can't stress that enough because that's where I fell short for a while was trusting that a neurologist could take on that my my loved one's injuries and know everything about that type of injury, uh, including the best treatment modalities, when there are so many others out there that could be uh, better suited for the injury. And if you see things that aren't really um, really going with that diagnosis that your loved one has and uh, and fitting with that diagnosis, like, um, you know, whatever the symptomology the doctor tells you is behind that diagnosis. If you're seeing things that are different, don't be afraid to raise your voice. Don't be afraid to point out those things that aren't matching and, and really stepping up and saying, we need further testing. Why is this happening? Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask what that specialist has for uh, their experience and their background with that certain type of injury of your loved one. Another uh, really good thing for me was looking for medical journals, um, and one was the Journal of Head Trauma and Rehab. That That's a... It's a very good uh, journal that has lots of research that's up-to-date and newer research on how rehab modalities and treatment modalities for TBI injuries. Um, but it's it's really raising your voice and asking those questions and not being con- concerned with if you need a wall because you're going to, whatever it is, financial. Um, it could be with their insurances saying they're not going to cover anything. Don't be afraid to appeal. Don't be afraid if you have to do more than one appeal. Uh, I'm in that process right now. And when I first had to do an appeal and it came back denied, I I felt defeated. But it wasn't defeat because I know what's fueling me is that he needs the right treatment. He needs acknowledgement of his uh, injury and he needs the right treatment to get better or to get to his optimal level of function. And that's not going to happen with me sitting here feeling defeated, it's only going to happen with action, and it's going to happen with me raising my voice for that for my loved one, and that's the same for others who need to push their case. You know, whoever it is you're fighting for, that may be a daunting task, and you're one person, but start developing that support team with, like, uh, the Brain Injury Association of America. They have advocates across the country that can help you fight for your case. They have brain injury lawyers that can help you with those appeal processes. But this is newer knowledge for me that I wish I had 10 years ago to give to somebody. So if you if you need to push the healthcare case for your loved one, don't be afraid to step in and be that voice.
Both Sharon and Jessica realize the importance of being a tireless advocate. In the VA hospital, there is not a lot of connecting with a dog. Um, you have to have an advocate. Well, throwing a, TB, a guy with PTSD and TBI and physical injuries into a military brick, there is even less connecting with the dogs. And it became a, a, a huge push reaching into every advocate that I could. I called every organization, every senator, congressman, anybody that I possibly could to reach out and say, my son needs care. I, I wasn't saying my son needs to get out of the brig. I was saying my son needs care. You need to help me get care for him. You need to make sure that he's evaluated. And what's kind of um, odd about this interview is a captain from the DVBIC called me back. He reached into the hierarchy of the brig. She reached out. And she called me back and she was like, I am so sorry. This is very difficult. This is a problem. We do need to do it. Um, shortly after that, one of his providers in the brig put in the notes that he needed to get an evaluation. Um, I, I would like to think that she is one of the reasons um, that he got to Balboa Hospital, finally got an evaluation, and we began the long push for getting him care, getting diagnosis, getting evaluation, which um, coincided with him going to Fort Fort uh, Sill and then to Walter Reed. And, and then we really began to understand what was going on, and I was able to finally become his advocate as he came out of the military uh, officially. Prior to, I was just a bully mom. But afterwards, I was officially a caregiver and an advocate. It sounds like what caregivers really want is clear and open communication with providers. And that's very interesting to hear because the providers I spoke with echoed a lot of the points Sharon and Jessica made regarding open communication and regarding finding a support network. A key point for any caregiver is that, no, they are supported by a full team. We're there for them, whatever they need, make sure they get to whoever person specialty they talk to and also too there's another second part of that in addition to the medical team approach is we look at every aspect of their care um, early on we weren't doing real good with like the traumatic brain injury aspect we were missing things and saying oh this was to be expected and how you treat a person is important especially in regards to traumatic brain injury because you really can't again hit them with a lot of detailed information present to them and expect them to recall it. You have to interact with them a lot differently, feed them bits and pieces of information sequentially, make sure that they're understanding it. And again, that's back to the caregiver. That's really where it's really key for them to understand what's up so they can remind the patient. So, okay, look, do you know you have an appointment at 2 o'clock today? Did you remember that? Did you write it down? That kind of thing. And again, for a caregiver, they really need to be aware of the burnout factor. They need to take care of themselves and make sure they know what systems are out there to support them. Again, early on, we focused so much on the patient, we overlooked the impact it had on the caregiver, the family, the friend, you know, whoever it was, significant other that was helping that patient. And there was burnout. There was significant burnout, which impacted how well we could take care of the patient. When you burn out the caregiver, you've got a problem, and it's easy to do. You so focus on the patient, it's easy to fall into that trap. 
So again, they, they need to be aware of that, self-aware of what's going on. Need to talk with the other family members here, the other caregivers, find out what things worked, what problems they might have had, because them getting advice from that group of people is also really key and critical because they're living it right now. They've been down that road, and they always cover things too, which tend to be a little more outside of the medical field, but which are still really important to that that patient and that family member to make their stay here productive. We want to eliminate as much stress as we can, make sure they know what's out there. There are a lot of different support systems. There's groups out there, the Army, the Marines, the Air Force, they all have their own support systems, and there are hospital support systems too, which is all there, but a lot of times people don't know to ask for that. That's our responsibility, and they also get that information from those other family members and caregivers that have been here a long time. What sorts of strategies can caregivers use? Dr. Shaw recommended that caregivers make their own list of priorities and then make sure that those priorities are addressed over the course of meetings that they have with health care providers. She also brought up the potential usefulness of telehealth options. I, I, I hope that if they are not aware of it, that telehealth and secure messaging and some of the other technology that we have now to connect uh, patients and the patient care unit with their clinician, even if their clinician is not close by, it's really remarkable, and I have been able to get so much information that I otherwise can't get, and not exactly real time, but sometimes real time. I can see a patient's home. A caregiver doesn't have to tell me what's wrong and, and hope that I'm envisioning things correctly. I can, she can walk me around his or her environment and say, this is what it looks like, um, and this is what's happening, and it's really, I don't know, it's pretty fantastic. So it sounds like providers can benefit from open communication as well. Absolutely. Steve Springer emphasized that caregivers should feel encouraged to voice any and all concerns that they have. We always encourage open line of communication with any provider on any subject that patient or family member has a question about. We are constantly asking, interacting with them. I know personally, I make it a point to talk with as many of my patients every day as I can. The office door is always open. I always return all call and email within at least eight hours, if not one business day. That's just a personal standard I set. And I want to have a good work relationship with all of the patients, their family member, and the other providers on the team. I can honestly say in all my 15 years here, I've never had a negative interaction with another healthcare provider on the amputee care team. It is always about the patient, the family member providing the best care we can. And again, it's the responsibility of the patient and the caregiver to let us know what's going on. They have to talk to us constantly. If something we're doing is not working, let us know. We'll change it. We're working for them. We want to make sure we give them the best result it's possible in regards to medical care. And we really want them to talk to us. And again, the family is the key. That caregiver is in with that patient during all aspects of their care except the operating room. And if we could do that, we'd do that too. But realistically, we really want to go ahead and make sure that they understand that they are the center of what we do. We are patient care driven. We want to make sure that they understand that, and we want to collaborate with them to give them the best outcome that's possible with what we do. So providers really do want caregivers to be vocal about what they need and about what their service member and veteran needs as well. Exactly. The more these support networks interact, the better the outcome for the patient. Better for the patient and the caregiver. Gentlemen, this has been very illuminating. Thank you both. Dr. Livingston, before we close, um, Jessica and Sharon had a great uh, networking opportunity when they connected with us on the podcast. We'd really like for you to uh, listen to that.